I'm excited to get back into James with you. I know that uh, Blaine did a wonderful job uh, in verse 5 through 8 while I was gone. And we're going to go ahead and uh, jump ahead a little bit to verse 12 of chapter 1. We're going to go 12 through 16 today and look at the biology of sin. That title was for Johnny. I made that for Johnny. Biology. He's a biology teacher. Thought he'd like it. Or the life cycle of sin. But before we get into it, let's pray. Lord, your word is so powerful, Lord. Um, it discerns the thoughts and tents of our heart. And Lord, we, we need you to come in like a sharp, double-edged sword, like a surgeon's scalpel, and pinpoint the areas of our life where we have been letting the enemy rule and reign, Lord, where we have been worshiping ourselves and the things of this world and we've been obedient to our lust rather than obedient to you lord we pray for a work of your spirit to just powerfully come and convict us of sin and of your righteousness and of judgment and lord that we would receive today the power that's available in the name of jesus the power that's available through what you've done in your perfect life and your obedient death. Lord, that you would impute your righteousness to us. You'd give us a love for the things that are holy, the things that are pure, and you'd give us an absolute distaste for sin and for wickedness. And so do a work in our midst, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You have two choices. You can go or you can stay. You can listen or you can leave. Don't leave. You can log on and, and click, or you can sign off. You can say yes, or you can say no. You can speak out, or you can stay silent. You can stand up, or you can walk away. You're in a temptation situation, and it's your choice as to what you'll do. The temptation situations are different for every single one of us. We're prone to different temptations. A recent survey asked the question, what's the hardest thing in your life for you to control? Top response was weight. 38% of folks had a problem controlling their weight. 32.3 said spending uncontrollably. 16.9 identified fear in their life. 10.8% had a hard time managing anger. Just 1.5% struggled with substance abuse. And I'm sure if that poll was taken here, it would be different, but the point trying to, I'm trying to make is that everyone struggles with different areas of sin. Ponder back, think back to the last time you found yourself in a situation of temptation. The time that you did a double take. Oh, should, I, should I really do this? The time that you were lured in and baited. When your pulse raced and your palms sweated. When you sense the Holy Spirit saying, don't go there, don't do that, I got something better for you, I'm here, I'm able, you're forced to make a decision. When was the last time you had that? How did you fare? What choice did you make? The book of James, the context of our passage today is all about our faith and how our faith will have evidence that it's really faith. It is a faith that leave tr leaves tracks. For all of you hunters out there, 
when you're hunting that bull, you know, when you're hunting that buck, and you see its droppings. Ooh, I did better this sermon last week. I wasn't as churchy. You see its droppings. You see its tracks. You see its footprints by the creek bed. You see where it's rubbed its antlers on the tree. You see its tracks. It's evidence that there was really a beast there. And for those that call themselves Christians and for those that say they have faith in the Son of God who loves them and gave them himself for them, there will be evidence. There will be tracks in your life. In, in, in uh, James chapter 1 today, we see that one of these evidences will be saying no to sin and saying yes to the Lord Jesus. There was once a little girl who was told not to eat the freshly baked cookies, but she was hungry, so she bit in. Later, when her mom confronted her, the little girl whimpered, I just climbed up to smell them and my tooth got caught. <laughs> Essentially, she was saying, it was the cookies' fault. They just jumped off of the platter and hung on to my tooth. Probably only had one tooth. Here's the first truth that we need to recall in our study today in this temptation situation is that it's not the cookie's fault and the devil didn't make me do it and it's certainly not God's fault. I am the one responsible and accountable for my choices. And as James will be showing us, my faith is tested in the times of trials and I'm going to have to make the right choice. Sin is described in the Bible as transgression of the law of God or rebellion against God. Romans calls it missing the mark or falling short of the glory of God. It comes from an old archery term that when they would have these competitions, an archer would pull back and draw back. And if he hit anywhere that wasn't the target point, uh, the judge would throw up a flag and say, sin, sin, he missed the mark. And the Bible tells us that all of us have sinned. All of us have missed the mark and fallen short of the glory of God. The effects of our sin are sad and devastating. They are horrible things, including abuse and rape and our parents leaving and divorcing and cheating and disease from unfaithfulness and miscarriages. Sin is taking what God created in perfect peace and beauty and glory. It was shalom. It was all good. And it's treading upon it with dirty feet. It is destroying it and distorting it. There are sins of commission when we do what we're not supposed to do. And there are sins of omission when we don't do what we're supposed to do. Our sins can count as thoughts that we think and words that we speak, deeds that we do and our motives. Sin is godlessness and ignoring God. Sin is idolatry. It is idol worship where we give ourselves to something other than Jesus or we exchange Jesus for something else. Romans chapter 1, when Paul lays out this indictment on humanity and shows us the radical depravity of man, he shows us that the wrath of God burns heavily against all uncleanness and unrighteousness of men because what was known of God that God put in our hearts to know about him 
And what is clearly seen in creation around us about God, all of that truth of God, we suppress in unrighteousness. We push it away and say, I don't want that about God. I don't want how God's created things. I don't want how God does things. I want how I would do things. And I want what I want and I want it now. And that has an effect of God finally giving us over to a debased mind to do things that are not fitting, to do things that have not been how we've been created. As you read the latter part of Romans 1, there's this whole list of heinous sins. They're just an example of our hearts. As we de-God God, as we exchange the worship that goes to the Creator and take it down to this human created level and begin to worship people, places, and things around us. That is idolatry. And at the heart of sin is idolatry. Sin can be crimes and non-crimes. The police won't arrest you for simply lusting or adultery or covetousness or lying. The breaking of laws can be sinful. Humans' laws, God's laws. Breaking our conscience, whatever is not from faith is of sin, and to him who knows what is good but does not do it, to him it is sin. Sin is perversion, which uses something good as sin. Sin is pollution, taking something that is good and adding something evil to it to make it impure. Sin takes a good thing and turns it into a god. So that we begin to live for things that were once good, living for money, living for power, living for achievement, living for sex, glory, intelligence, family, living for comfort, living for luxury, living for home, living for family. The human heart is an idol factory. We're popping them out and we're worshiping them. And the Lord would have us refocus even today our worship onto Him, the living, true God, the creator of the universe, whose invisible attributes are clearly seen all around us and clearly spoken to us even today. James is going to show us the life cycle of temptation leading to sin, leading to death. But he starts out on a positive note in verse 12, showing us that we can love God through trials. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. Sounds a lot like the Sermon of the Beatitudes, doesn't it? We studied that this summer in the park. Blessed is the man. Blessed are those who are righteous. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are... uh, peacemakers, and so on and so forth. Sounds like Jesus' sermon. James seems to pick it up here. Blessed are those who endure these temptations. Enduring, resisting, staying behind the trials that come our way. There's a blessing in the trials. Peter tells us in chapter 3, verse 14, if you suffer for righteousness' sake, blessed are you. Or if you're reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. When you go through these times of trials, blessed are you, happy are you. These are good things. That's why James says you can count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And James tells us for when you've been approved, after you've been examined and been found good and genuine, that your faith has been genuine, you will receive glory. You will receive a a reward, the crown of life. 
which the Lord has promised those that love him. We receive a crown for pressing on and persevering through the trials and through the temptation. This word crown, there's a couple different words for crown in the New Testament. One of them is diadem. It's the crown that the Lord Jesus wears. It's that kingly crown with the gems and the gold and all of that good stuff. But the crown that's mentioned here for us is a Stephanos. It's that leafy crown that's like given during the Olympics. And we see little Caesar's pizza guy wearing it, you know. It's like a reward crown. The Stephanos given to those who are victorious over the trial. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 36 says, you have need of endurance. So you have done, after you've done the will of God, you'd receive the promise. The, the trials come and they develop endurance in us. And then the endurance brings about the promise. James 5.11 says, we'll get there in a few months, I suppose. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. There's a blessing in enduring the temptations and the trials of life. Now, verse 13 of our text today comes along. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Now, this seems like a bit of a contradiction, especially after the first 12 verses tell us that God's in the business of testing us and bringing us through trials. And here, when we're tempted, don't say I'm tempted by God. That's not God who's doing that. And this is where getting into the definitions of the word and looking the original meanings up is very helpful. Because in verse 12, we have the word tempt, but it's different than the form of the word in verse 13. In verse 12, we have paresmos, which means you're blessed when you go through testings and trials. It's the same definition of a Hebrew word found in Deuteronomy 8.16. Who fed you in the wilderness with manna which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good in the end. So we see that God's in the business of bringing us through trials to humble us and test us, to see if we'll be obedient. He did that with the children of Israel, from the moment they left Egypt, when they were up against the Red Sea, are we going to trust the Lord and all that he's done? He just did the, the plagues, the 10 plagues. He just led us out through the Passover lamb sacrifice. We were spared from the angel of death. We were given all of the riches of, of Egypt. And here we are running. And now we're up against a, the, a sea, the, de, uh, the Red Sea. What are we going to do? Well, we're not going to trust the Lord. <laughs> there was a test there. And the Lord is faithful and he comes through and he parts the Red Sea and they go through as on dry land. And then pretty soon they find themselves hungry and the Lord provides manna and they find themselves thirsty and the Lord provides water out of the rock. And then they would move on and get a, little hung, get a little hungry again, get a little thirsty again. And they begin to complain against the Lord. They would want to go back to Egypt, to go back to the world. Finally, they come to the land of promise and there's some bad guys there, but surely God's not good enough and strong enough and able enough to defeat the bad guys and give us the land. And because they doubted, they died. The Lord led them through the land for 40 years. He had tested their faith and found them wanting. It's the same phrase, it's the same wording, it's the same def definition that there's a testing and a trial that the Lord uses to refine us, that the Lord uses to 
check out our faith and see if it's genuine. But verse 13 has another form of this word, perezo, which means to try to trap. To try to trap. And that's the business that the Lord is not in. Guzik says, temptation does not come from God, though he allows it. He himself does not entice us to evil. Though God may test our faith without a a solicitation to evil, he does not himself tempt anyone. It's the wicked one who tries to trap us. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, the tempter comes to Jesus and says, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. It's the tempter that tempts. In 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, Paul calls Satan the tempter who tempts you. Now, we believe in the sovereignty of God. But even one who would maybe go even beyond where I'm at in my doctrine of of the sovereignty of God, John Calvin would write, When Scripture ascribes blindness or hardness of heart to God, it does not assign to him the beginning of the blindness nor does it make him the author of sin so as to ascribe to him the blame. He would later write, Scripture asserts that the reprobate are delivered up to depraved lust, but it is because the Lord, de- but is it because the Lord depraves or corrupts their hearts? By no means, for their hearts are subjected to depraved lust because they are already corrupt and vicious. God is never the one responsible for the sin or the damnation of any man. And as we would look in Genesis chapter 6, right before the flood, the Lord looks at the earth in the time of Noah. He sees the wickedness of man and how it is great on the earth and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. These are some bad hombres. But guess what? These are some bad hombres. We have inherited this same sinful nature. We are radically depraved. We are wicked and it's great. And apart from Jesus Christ, there is no hope. Every intent and thought of the heart is only evil continually. And even after the flood, when the ark rests on the mountain and they get off and they sacrifice and the smoke from the sacrifice goes up to the Lord and the rainbow appears. I thought about that uh, when we had those nice double rainbows going on in Primeville this week. It says there in Genesis 8.21, the Lord smells this soothing aroma and the Lord says in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. Man is wicked. We don't blame the temptations on God. And so where does this come from? What is the source of these temptations and of sin? It says in verse 14, each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desire and enticed. So here we have the biology of sin or the life process of sin. And this process starts out with flirtation. Flirtation. Where we are drawn away by our own desires and enticed. We are lured away. We are lured into sin. Just like that fish who has that sparkly, shiny thing. You know, they're going this way. And all of a sudden, like over here, you know, (laughs) lured away. 
by the rooster tail of the panther martin. But lured away by desire, by a deep desire, by a lust, by the imagination of their heart that is only wicked continually. James asks, where do wars and fights come from among you? Don't they come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? These desires are in each of us. Now, the initial temptation is not a sin. The initial catching of the eye is not the sin. Even Jesus was tempted. It's not a sin to see a gorgeous girl and to note there is beauty there. That's, that's the initial thought. And even to recognize that. It's not a sin to desire the, the drink. It's not a sin to desire and to try to provide for your family. But what happens is that sin will come in and distort. As long as we have a pulse, we're going to be tempted. But James is telling us that faith sees beyond the temptation. Faith leaves tracks in our hearts and it keeps me from acting out on those things to take them deeper than how God's mandated for them to be used in a way that would shame me, hurt me, hurt somebody else, embarrass our Savior. Martin Luther once said, evil thoughts are like birds. You can't keep them from flying over your head, but you can keep them from nesting in your hair. We go throughout life and and the temptations are there. The temptations are there. And we can't control that. But the minute we begin to have that thought and begin to savor that thought and think about that thought and how that could go down and what that could look like, we have let the crow land on our head and build a nest. We've gone too far in the cycle of sin. Entertain a thought long enough and it'll flare up into a desire. Verse 15 says, Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And so we had a flirtation there. We had a, a, a let away, an enticement by our own desires. But the flirtation has moved to conception. It's the idea of this pregnancy that's taken place, this conceiving of the sinful thought. And this second step here goes from conception to the birth of this sin into its infancy. When desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Have you ever taken a bite of a nice, shiny, juicy red apple only to discover that you weren't alone in enjoying your snack? As the old joke says, what's worse than biting into an apple and finding a worm? Finding a half of a worm? How does a worm get inside an apple? Perhaps you think the worm burrows in from the outside. But some genius scientists have discovered that the worm comes from the inside. How does it get there? Simple. Some fly or insect comes along and lays an egg on the apple blossom And sometime later, the worm hatches in the heart of the apple and eats his way out. Sin is just like that. Sin is just like the worm. It begins in the heart and it works out through our thoughts and our words and our actions. And Jesus himself says that that no defilement comes from the outside. It comes from the inside. 
It's what comes from inside that, that defiles man. Because from within our heart comes all kinds of lusts and adulteries and murderous thoughts. Augustine wrote in the Confessions of St. Augustine. By the way, if you're a Christian here today, you're a saint. All right? John Corson said you're either a saint or an ain't. And I want to be a saint, right? So Augustine wasn't anything special. He was just a saint like other Christians. But he wrote, sin comes when we take a perfectly natural desire or longing or ambition and try desperately to fulfill it without God. Not only is it sin, it's a perverse distortion of the image of the creator in us. All these good things and all our security are rightly found only and completely in him. And so what happens is that we are lured away it's a flirtation of this idea. We're lured away and we're enticed. And when we act upon that, sin is conceived and it gives birth and it's in its infant stages. But the third stage here tells us that sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And so we have now the third stage, which is adulthood started out as this cute little sin baby, right? Little sin baby grows up to become sin man. Not good. When sin is full grown, it brings forth death. When evil is full grown, it brings forth death. When guilt is full grown, it brings forth death or literally the plague. And we see this in the example of the original sin, the first Sin, in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. Interesting, if you search and research, you'll be hard-pressed to find in all of ancient literature or any other piece of writing that gives an explanation for the origin of sin and misery in the world. But we have it here. We have it here in the inspired word of God. And whether you accept the explanation or not, we need to accept that there is an explanation given in the word of God. Genesis 2.15 tells us the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying of every tree in the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Sounds good. Everything is shalom. Creation is good. It's pleasant. We walk with the Lord in the cool of the day. We have fellowship with God. We're in paradise. We have dominion over the animals. Enter in what the children's Bible calls the sneaky snake. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree in the garden? Who is this sneaky snake? Revelation 12, 9 says he's a great dragon. He was cast out of heaven. He was the serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. And in Revelation, we see him cast out of heaven where he can no longer give accusations against men as he does in the book of Job. And his angels are finally cast out once and for all with them. This dragon, this serpent, this sneaky snake works in us a doubting of God. You see, James is all about trusting the Lord. 
and faith, and there will be evidence of faith. But the Lord has always, from the very beginning, from the first sin, wanted to get us to doubt God. And he says, has God indeed said? Think about the last time that you were tempted and tested. What was it? Did God really say I shouldn't do that, or go there, or say that, or hear that, or view that? Did God really say, let's see, he could have meant this. And he could have meant that. Did he really say that? It's doubting the Lord. It's doubting the word of God. Satan will always try to get you to question God's word. And then he will twist what God said so it will fit his agenda of getting you to fall. We see here he also misquotes the word of God as he would do with Jesus. As he says, you shouldn't eat of every tree of the garden. He changed one word. He added every He made God to be some sort of a dictator control freak by changing one word. And the woman says to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. Now Eve had a little problem. She didn't have her Bible open to quote the scripture and she added something to the word of God, nor shall you touch it. The temptation was already getting her to question the Lord. Yeah, he is a little bit severe, and nor shall you even touch it, was kind of how he'd mandated that to us. And so, when the woman says this, verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. All right, so Satan tempts us. He comes in. We see this first luring, the drawing away by our own desires and enticed, trying to get us to doubt God, trying to get us to de-God God and to make ourselves like God. We will be like God. We will know good and evil. Satan says, God is wrong. You won't surely die. Sin will have pleasant consequences. Satan says, God's a liar. God's withholding from you. And if you believe this, then you will sin to obtain what you want. You'll sin to get that relationship with that guy or girl, that possession or that experience. And if you pursue it, the result will be dissatisfaction and distrust. Satan says you're wonderful and you have great potential and God is not allowing you to obtain these things. He's hampering you. So in verse 6, the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, And a tree was desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. And so we have desire conceiving and giving birth to a cute little sin baby right there. Then the eyes of them both were open. They realized they were naked. They took fig leaves and sewed them and tried to make for themselves some covering. They tried to cover their own sin, which we always try to do. They hid from the Lord when he came out for their daily stroll. First game of hide-and-go-seek in the Bible, by the way. Perhaps the only game. Don't know. But they hid from the Lord, and they ended up being caught. And the Lord says, what is this you've done to the woman? And the woman says, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Then comes the blame game. The serpent did that. And then the man says, well, the woman you gave me made me do it. It's just a whole bunch of, the devil made me do it. And the woman made me do it. So, And you made me do it. There's a lot of blaming going on. 
But the woman says, the devil deceived me and I ate. Paul would say, I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ Jesus. The language that Paul used for deceive, the deceit from the serpent to the woman in the original manuscripts in this compound Greek verb, having been seduced by deceit, it implies how completely Satan seduced in deceiving her. She was just completely deceived at that moment. And so the Lord says to the serpent, because you've done this, you're cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go. You'll eat dust all the days of your life. And verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This verse 15 is one of the most incredible verses in all of Genesis because it's what's called the proto-evangelium or the first gospel. This is the first gospel account. Basically, sin comes and the gospel comes. God had a plan for what was going to happen. From the foundation of the world, God was going to glorify himself through the death of his son. He is going to send someone who's going to be the seed of Eve. And this someone is going to crush Satan's head. And in the process, he himself will be bruised. That's what happened at Mount Calvary when Jesus was bruised and crushed and beaten as he was stripped and whipped, as he was pierced through with nails and nailed to that Roman cross. Satan thought he won, but he severely lost. He bruised Jesus, but he lost all his power that day. Jesus kicked Satan's teeth out in a sense. So when he tries to bite, he only gums us to death. He has no more power. One day he's finally going to be cast into the bottomless pit Verse 15, the first gospel. To the woman, the Lord said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, because you've heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and dust you shall return. And so here we have the third part of this biology lesson today. When sin is full grown, it brings forth death. It brings forth death, or a plague. Through this sin, a plague spread throughout the whole earth, to the earth itself, to all of creation, and to every person who would come from the line of Adam, which is everybody, if you know the genealogy. And it was true to the word of God, as Genesis 2.17 said, for in the day that you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. Paul says in Romans 5.12 that just through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin And thus death spread to all men because all sinned. All have sinned. We have what's called inherited sin through Adam. We have a sinful nature. We have a sinful genealogy. But we also have what's called an imputed sin. It's where we have heaped upon ourselves all kinds of sin. I want to take you through some of the Old Testament history and some of the history lessons where we see this sin cycle. We're going to start with uh, the story of 
Uh, well, we started with the original sin, but let's go to Joshua chapter 7, where we see this sinful process in Achan's life. Now, it kind of starts out that Joshua led the children of Israel into victory around Jericho, and they were not to take of any of the plunder. They were not to take of any of the gold and any of the things. And, and, uh, and a little while afterwards, they went into a battle against Ai. And at Ai, the the nation was losing in the battle. They were having a great slaughter and all of their people were dying. And the Lord, and Joshua asked the Lord, Lord, why are we losing? What's going on? And the Lord says, you guys are losing because someone disobeyed. Someone took of the garment. And the story is really, or someone took of the plunder, pardon me. And the story is really interesting just to know the, the knowledge of the Lord and the words of knowledge of the Holy Spirit because Okay, Lord, well, who did this great sin that's causing us to lose the battle? And the Lord, just through the process of elimination, narrows it down from the nation of Israel to a certain tribe and from the certain tribe to a certain man's house and then down to the specific individual. The man's name was Achan. In verse 19, Joshua said to Achan, My son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to him and tell me now what you've done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I've done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels. So what do we have here in our life cycle? We have that first part of that luring away, that drawing away and enticed by his own desires. And he says, I coveted them and took them. The second part. Desire conceived and gave birth to sin. And there they are, hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with the silver under it. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent. And there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver under it. And they took them from the midst of the tent, brought them to Joshua and to all the children of Israel and laid them out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, The silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones and they burned them with fire after they'd stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones still there to this day. And so we have the third effect of sin. When sin is full grown, it brings forth death. And so the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. And the name of the place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. Consider the goodness of God and consider the severity of God. On those that obey, goodness. And on those that would disobey, severity and judgment. God is a holy God, and he is a loving God, and he is a just and righteous God. And in his righteousness, he cannot look upon sin. John tells us that there is sin that leads to death. This sin of Achan, it was a sin that led to death. It was a sin that caused a great slaughter of their army. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 committed a sin that led to death. We see that that's part of the fall. That is part of 
why sin is so bad is it has this effect of death and destruction always left in its wake. We saw it in Achan's life. We see it in David's life. In 2 Samuel 11, 17, or 11, 1 through 17. It happened in the spring of the year. At the time when kings go out to battle. Is not, that not like the most epic beginning to like a Bible story? You need like James Earl Jones reading it. Or Morgan Freeman might be, but I don't know. One of those guys. It happened in the spring of the year. At the time when the kings go out to battle. That David said to Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, that they de- as they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And that's where Morgan Freeman's voice kind of is like, uh-oh. You know, David didn't go out to battle. David remained in Jerusalem. A pastor friend of mine very wisely shared with me the equation once that time plus opportunity equals trouble. You got a bunch of time on your hands. You got a whole lot of opportunity to sin. You're in trouble. Got a whole lot of time on your hands, but no opportunity to sin. Okay. Got a whole lot of opportunity, but no time. Okay. But watch out when time and opportunity are combined. There will be trouble. As David remained in Jerusalem, it happened one evening that David arose from his bed. Nothing to do, nothing to do, nothing to do. And he walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. Here we have this first process, this, this first part of the sin process, where he is drawn away by his own desires. He's enticed, he's lured. This is the temptation period where it could have just been an accident. Oh, 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 awkward, awkward, awkward. Oh, man, like, I got to get out of here. I got to go hang out with my buddies. I got to, this is, this, this is not good. Man, I am not going on the roof again at night when I'm all by myself around here. Bad idea, bad idea. And once you know what those bad ideas are, stay out of them. Make no provision for the flesh that you would fulfill its lusts. On the TV show Hee Haw, Doc Campbell is confronted by a patient who says he broke his arm in two places. The doctor replies, well then, stay out of them places. Stay off of the roof. Stay away from the HBO package. Stay away from those things that are going to cause you to sin. It would have been just a mere temptation, just the crow flying over the head. Oh man, oh gosh, oh, close the blades Close the blinds, you know, uh, get some friends around me, get, you know, get my wife around me, you know, where's she at, you know, all six of them, whatever many I have right now. It was already an issue there. But David didn't just, oh, mere mistake, my bad, my bad, and and walk off and and run away and do something else. It says in verse 3, so David went and inquired about the woman. Oh, who do we have here? And someone said... Is this not Bathsheba? No pun intended. Bathsheba. Okay. Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? I like this someone who said this because you can tell they're trying to get real specific with David. This is someone's daughter. This is someone's wife. And then David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him 
and he lay with her. And this is where we have that step two in the James process where desire conceives and gives birth to sin. She ends up telling him that he is pregnant. And so to try to get himself out of a conundrum, he's like, well, I'll just bring Uriah, her husband, back from the battlefield. He's one of my mighty men of valor. I'll bring him back. I'll say, man, you've been such a good warrior. Go, feast, be with your wife, lie with her. That plan backfired when Uriah got back and said, how can I lie with my wife when the ark of God is in battle with Israel and my brothers? And so he slept and he lay at the foot of David's, uh, really the door to David's room on the floor with the servants. And so David thought, well, I'll just go ahead and get him drunk and then he'll have to go lie with his wife. And the servant still, or then Uriah still doesn't go lie with Bathsheba. And so he's in a real predicament now. And so he says, you know what? I'm going to write a letter to Joab and I'm going to have Joab, my commander, put Uriah in the hottest part of the battle, right underneath where the archers always are. And in the heat of the battle, I'm going to pull everyone back except for Uriah and he'll be killed. And so that's exactly what happened. Uriah was slain by the archers along with many of the warriors of Israel. And we see that desire conceived gives birth to sin and more sin and more sin and some deceits and some plans as we try to cover that sin and more deceit and more wickedness until that sin is full grown and it brings forth death. It brought forth death to the servants or the warriors in the battle, it brought death to Uriah the Hittite. In 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, the Lord uses Nathan the prophet to speak word of knowledge into David's life. I know what you did. And because there's blood on your hands in this sin, your son who's been conceived is going to die. And so this full-grown sin has led to multiple deaths, including the death of David's own son, One of the incredibly sad things about the account of Achan's sin in Joshua and of David's sin is that it didn't only affect the man. Sin never does. It infected his whole family, Achan's, was stoned right there with them with all of their possessions. It affected the children of Israel who were in the battle of Ai. In David's case, it affected Uriah. It affected Bathsheba's home. Later on, In David's life, Uriah's own uh, father is going to commit suicide. It's going to cause all sorts of trouble in David's home. It's such a good word for us today that our sin doesn't just affect us. It affects our family. It affects our community. It affects our church. It affects our life. Sin grieves the Holy Spirit and it quenches the Holy Spirit. And what's obvious in David's life, sin will make you do what you never thought you'd do. It'll make you go where you never thought you'd go and stay longer than you ever thought you'd stay. It'll make you pay a price you never thought you'd pay. In Proverbs 7, we have this process as Solomon writes about looking out the window of his house. And he looked through his lattice and saw among the simple... I perceived among the youths a young man devoid of understanding passing along the street near her corner and he took the path to her house 
in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. You've got a young guy walking around town in the middle of the night by himself. Time plus opportunity equals trouble. I have a friend from college who always said, nothing good ever happens after 10 o'clock at night. You know, just be very careful after 10 o'clock at night. And there a a woman met him with the attire of a harlot and a crafty heart. She was loud and rebellious. Her feet would not stay home. At times she was outside, at times in the open square, lurking in every corner. So she caught him and kissed him with an impudent face. She said to him, I have peace offerings with me. Today I have paid my vows. So I came out to meet you diligently to seek your face. And I have found you. I've spread my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until morning. By the way, that fill of love is only till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He's taken a bag of money with him. He will come home on the appointed day. With her enticing speech, she caused him to yield. With her flattering lips, she seduced him. And here we have this first stage, drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Immediately he went after her. I mean, there was like no wrestling with the Lord here. Immediately he went after her. As an ox goes to the slaughter. Let that image stick with your mind as we read this. As an ox goes to the slaughter. Or as a fool to the correction of the stocks. We have this desire conceived and gives birth to sin till an arrow struck his liver. As a bird hastens to the snare, he did not know that it would cost him his life. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Now, therefore, listen to me, my children. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways nor stray into her path. For she's cast down many wounded, and all who were slain by her were strong men. Her house is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. This is a great proverb of wisdom for both men and women. Of how sin seduces, of how sin tempts. Many strong men and women have fallen. Let's look at a good report, huh? Let's look at Joseph's life, Genesis 39. You guys know we've recently read about Joseph in our Through the Bible in a Year reading plan that we're doing. We know that he was sold by his brothers for 20 pieces of silver. He went into uh, to Egypt as a slave. He was bought to be a servant in Potiphar's house. And the favor of the Lord was with him, even there in that house. He was given a, like a, a high position among the servants so that uh, almost, you know, Potiphar, you know, just hardly even checked up on what he was doing. He was doing such a great job. And uh, Potiphar, verse 6 says, left all that he had in Joseph's hand. He did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph and she said, lie with me. And so we hear, here we have this, this opportunity. We have this first part of the James formula led away. There's the temptation that's there. He, he could be led away by his desires. He could be enticed. 
But he refused, the scripture says in verse 8. He refused. And from that point on, we have no more of the James cycle of sin right here. The rest of this story of Joseph, we have none of that. Because he refused. And he said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house. He's committed all that he has to my hand. There's no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? What incredible word there. Whenever we're going into these temptation period, realize that it's wickedness and that it's a sin against the Lord. So it was as she spoke to Joseph day by day, just day after day. It didn't end there. There was just this, come on, come on, lie with me. You know, it was more pretty than that. But (laughs) although that's tempting, I know. Um, (laughs) He did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was inside that she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. And this is such a good word of wisdom for the men and women in this church. We have a policy among the elders just to never be alone with another woman, except our own wives. You know, just never giving rides alone. Recently I had to say, I'm sorry, I can't give you a ride. We have this policy just to be above reproach and to be blameless, that we just wouldn't be alone with, uh, with, with women. It was like, gosh, such wisdom. Such wisdom in that, isn't there? I encourage you to adopt that policy for yourself as well. Uh, taking these steps of being blameless and above reproach. Uh, but they were alone. It was only them in this master's house. And she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. It seems like there's just, for her, there's, she's being enticed. And she's having this conception of sin uh, born out here. as She grabs onto his garment But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. So it was when she saw that uh, she left. The story goes on there. We're not going to get into it for the sake of time today. But we have him fleeing the presence of this temptation. I love that word flee. Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 6.18. Flee sexual immorality. It means a hard, strong to pin down action. Watching the, you know, the wrestlers around here, you know, we got this mat club. And man, when these guys are in the midst of the wrestling, they jump down and they scooch out and they pin their back up and they pop out. They get out of that situation. These strong, hard to pin down actions. He tells Timothy, flee things and then pursue righteousness. It's not just flee the sin, but then it's pursue the Lord. James tells us, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. As we have the worship team come up in closing, Joseph is such a hero, isn't he? Such a hero of the faith. What a tempting situation that would have been. And a a wealthy woman, a queen, probably had access to the spa of Egypt. Just beautiful, taken care of, begging you. Day after day, begging you. The conviction of the Lord God in his heart. How could I sin and do this great wickedness? He's a hero. But I want to close today looking at the true and better Joseph. The one who was much more obedient in every aspect of his life. 
Do you remember in our look at Adam, how through Adam's sin, sin entered the world? Romans 5.18 says, through one man's offense, judgment came to all men. Good job, Adam. Another course in, he's the original Adam bomb. Good job, buddy. I would have done no better. Through one man, judgment came to, uh, one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Here's the good news. Even so, through one man, And his righteous act, the free gift, comes to all men, resulting in justification of life. Through one man and his disobedience, many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, many were made righteous. That's the gospel. Through one man's righteous act, righteous living, righteous life, many were made righteous. Jesus was tempted. The devil tried to lead him into a trap. As the Union Pacific Railroad was being constructed, an elaborate trestle bridge was built across a large canyon in the west. Wanting to test the bridge, the builder loaded a train with enough extra cars and equipment to double its normal payload. Then the train was taken and driven to the middle of the bridge where it stayed there an entire day. One worker asked, saying, Are you trying to break our bridge? No, the builder replied. I'm trying to prove that the bridge won't break. In the same way, the temptation that Jesus faced was designed not to see if he would sin, but to prove that he wouldn't. Hebrews 5.8 says, Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. As the son, he was always obedient to the father's will. But the special obedience needed to qualify him as our high priest, he learned experientially in practical suffering. He was obedient already before his passion. But he stooped to a still more humiliating and trying form of obedience. The Greek adage is pathomata mathemata, suffering disciplinings, praying and obeying, as in Christ's case, ought to go hand in hand. Philip translates Hebrews 5.8 with, he had to prove the meaning of obedience through all that he suffered. Philippians tells us that he was obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. The Lord Jesus learned by his sufferings just what obedience to his Father involved in practice. That he who was obedient by his very nature learned the significance and the implications of that obedience as he walked out the path of everyday life. The next verse in Hebrews 5, verse 9 says, And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus is the hero. He said no to sin. He was already obedient, and then he learned obedience. And because he's obedient, Hebrews tells us he is a sympathetic high priest for us. 
He's a ready help for us in our time of need. And Hebrews tells us, though he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin, let us therefore come boldly to his throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's set our things aside and move to prayer and worship. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us in this room, even this morning, even during this message, sitting here, have walked through the temptation situation. And we perhaps even sense just the enemy speaking to us, I've got a barrage of temptation coming your way and you are going to fall this afternoon. You're going to fall this evening. And we can declare, how could I do such a great wickedness and sin against my God? I appeal to the mercies of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is my high priest and he is a ready help right now in my time of need. Believe that the Lord has brought us here today, the specific people, for this specific place, for this specific time, for this word from James. That we don't have to live in this sick cycle of sin. We can be, by the power and by the grace of God, a Joseph. We can resist the devil and he will flee from us. And right now, as we close in this song, it is a powerful, powerful song. I would encourage you, if you just feel the Lord speaking to you, that he wants to work in your life victory. He wants to work in your life a new habit. Habits not for sin, but habits of righteousness and pursuing the Lord rather than sin. I would encourage you to stand during this last song and respond to God and say, Lord, I choose today to to no longer let sin conceive in my heart and let it mature in my life. I recognize its effects are death and plague and destruction. Lord, instead today, as I sing this song, I appeal to what you have done on the cross, your righteousness brought to me. We're going to have the elders up front during this song and just here to pray. And if you just sense the Lord saying, man, I've got some, some good things for you. I've got a life of victory and a power for you. I want to deliver you from this and that. Do you hear me today? Do you hear me today? I would encourage you to just respond to the Lord and come forward and maybe you would want an elder to pray for you. We would love to pray for you and just help acknowledge this receiving by faith of the grace of God or maybe you would just want to come up and just stand or come up and kneel at the altar and offer up your life as a new creation no longer bound by steps one, two, and three of this biology of sin but now bound in service to the Lord Jesus Christ who always gives us the victory. Let's respond to him. You may stand, you may lift your hands, you may come forward and get prayer, you may come forward and bow, but let's respond to his word this morning.